Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. So you want your charity to succeed? It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect place to learn from experts around the world who, along with our host, provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books cover a broad range of topics from major gift fundraising to use of social media and how to succeed online. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you maneuver through this economic downturn in the charitable sector to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Remember, this is a live call-in show. Become part of the show by adding your voice. Call now at 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And good afternoon and welcome here to The Nonprofit Coach. We've got a big show for you today. I'm quite excited to uh, be welcoming an international expert in fundraising to page two. I am coming to you live from New York City today. It is Tuesday, October 9th. And as always here on The Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. As the announcer just mentioned, this is a live call-in show. You can add your voice by calling in at 347-324-3080. Press number one. That will raise your hand on the switchboard to let me know that you'd like to ask a question of our page two expert. Here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach, you can also join us over in the chat room. I see a number of uh, folks over in the chat room today. You can ask questions there, or you can email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. Over on tedhart.com, you can follow along in the radio links here uh, for page one news, so anything that we might mention here, or all of the radio links are there for all prior podcasts of the Nonprofit Coach. First up here on page one news, uh, coming to us from CNN Money is the announcement that Facebook has reached one billion users. Yes, one billion users. The co-founder and chief executive officer, Mark Zuckerberg, just made that announcement. Um, And what what is significant for nonprofit organizations? Well, as we've mentioned several times on this show in the six pillars of success, Facebook is not number one. Gets a lot of attention, but the most important thing you can do online for your organization is to have a well-designed website. Second is a guide star strategy followed by LinkedIn, LinkedIn being the most important social media uh, uh, outlet for nonprofit organizations, followed by Twitter and Facebook. Facebook is not insignificant. It's just how it fits and how you connect uh, to donors. The growth of uh, Facebook, of of course, has been um, astounding. Uh, It took Facebook six years to hit 500 million users and barely two years to double that to one billion. Facebook's total membership grew nearly 30% over the past year alone, but in hot regions like Brazil, its membership has doubled. Uh, What's significant about uh, these numbers um, is that the United States does not represent the largest population on uh, Facebook, uh, quite uh, the opposite. Um, However, it does represent um, a, a very large percentage of the revenue. Uh, revenue has hit $629 million, or will hit $629 million by 2014. Um, and the big battle for, uh, for the Facebook, for the future of Facebook, uh, will of course be uh, the battle for uh, social media on the mobile web. Uh, so good luck to uh, Facebook. 
uh, everyone who is using that platform. There's a lot of people over on Facebook. It is not insignificant. It is just not the most important social media outlet for nonprofit organizations. Uh, next up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach, it's always a pleasure uh, to welcome here to, uh, to the Nonprofit Coach, a very good friend of this show, Sherilyn Hale, is coming to us. Uh, this is truly an international show here today, Sherilyn. You're coming to us uh, from Toronto. Um, I'll actually be in uh, Toronto later on this week, a terrific city, and you're coming to us live today to bring us the CFRE Minute. So welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach, Sherilyn Hale. Thanks so much, Ted. Happy to be back, and uh, we'll look forward to welcoming you to Toronto. It's a fabulous city. Uh, it really is. Now, you're the uh, past chair of CFRE International, uh, immediate past chair of the CFRE board, and a principal of Watermark Philanthropic Advising uh, based in Toronto, Canada. Uh, what do you bring to us in terms of news uh, from CFRE? Well, I have a great news story to share with you and your listeners today. I'm actually I'm speaking with you today because uh, CFRE's terrific CEO, Eva Aldrich, is off to Europe uh, representing CFRE at the International Fundraising Conference. Uh, this year, CFRE is presenting the is sponsoring and presenting the Global Fundraiser Award, uh, which Eva will present uh, later next week. I'm not sure how many of your listeners, Ted, have had the opportunity to attend the IFC. I, I suspect uh, that you've been a featured speaker there many times. I I've attended been also. Featured there several times, and I, and I think that our Page Two expert has as well. Um, so uh, why don't you tell us uh, just a little bit about? Uh, the IFC and why it is uh, one of the premier uh, fundraising conferences globally. Mm-hmm. Well, wow. I, As many of us uh, fundraisers are committed to professional development, we've all attended conferences of different kinds, but uh, my experience last year was such an incredible eye-opener on the breadth and diversity of our of our profession with fundraisers coming together from over 60 countries speaking multiple languages it was inspiring and energizing um, we have a lot to learn from our colleagues from around the globe and um, one of the things that I've really appreciated about my volunteer uh, involvement with CFRE uh, which is the global credential for professional fundraisers uh, is having that global perspective and meeting colleagues from around the world. Um, we felt it was a good fit to align with the Global Fundraiser Award, which uh, recognizes the best of the best. And to be eligible for the award, uh, nominees must have won an award from their national uh, professional body or association uh, and therefore represent their country uh, coming into the uh, the conference. And, of course, we're very eager to find out who the winner will be this year. Oh, that's, uh, that's quite exciting. Um, how are things going at CFRE in terms of building the base of uh, professional certified fundraisers around the world? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I appreciate the question. It's an exciting time, and uh, I know that Eva... Uh, our CEO is looking forward to sharing a bit more detail with that. One of the things that I had shared the last time I joined your show uh, was about CFRE's rigorous research uh, that we did a couple of years ago. We actually do it every five to six years to ensure that we're keeping current and up-to-date. But the last research uh, surveyed fundraisers from eight different countries and in three languages in order to identify that core body of professional practice. And what we discovered was that there was great commonality and that we truly work within a shared uh, global profession. And as a result of that, uh, CFRE has been looking at uh, our our model, our, our business model, but also uh, how we go about offering uh, certification to, to fundraisers and um, looking at how we can uh, make it available, particularly in regions of the world where the profession is just uh, expanding and flourishing. And uh, we're, we're getting ready and we look forward to sharing more details in the coming time. But the details on that research that I mentioned can be found on CFRE's website. And, um, you know, for, for now, I'm just thinking of all our colleagues at the IFC and hope they have a wonderful conference and uh, wish best of luck to those nominated for the Global Fundraiser Award. Absolutely. We wish uh, great success uh, at the uh, IFC. And, of course, we have provided in the radio links today over at tedhart.com. Just click on radio. You will find the direct link to the CFRE website where you can find uh, the research and also be able to connect 
Um, of course, here on the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show, we do encourage uh, all eligible fundraisers to stand up, be counted, and be part of the global profession of fundraising by becoming a certified fundraising executive. And for those of you who may uh, be qualified for an upper-level certification, uh, one thing that I, I just learned is uh, I'm a, an ACFRE, uh, and uh, for more than a decade we have been referring to that as a, a group of less than 100 professionals around the world. But I just learned that uh, uh, we may be designating uh, the 100 um, uh, ACFRE mm-hmm. soon, so we will uh, uh, grow that uh, that constituency as well. Uh, Sherlyn Hale, thank you for joining us uh, from Toronto and bringing us uh, not only the good word of CFRE, but also of the IFC. Thanks so much, Ted. Happy to be here today and just want to acknowledge your support uh, of CFRE also. We appreciate it and uh, shout outs to all the CFREs out there. <laughs> terrific, terrific. Um, I appreciate that. Next up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coaches to draw your attention uh, to an article that comes to us from the U.K., again, keeping up that international flavor today, coming to us from The Guardian, asking the question, are B corporations defining business for the 21st century? Capitalism is becoming less obsessed with revenue and more focused on creating social value say the founders of the B Corporation movement. Now, I bring that up here because uh, if you are wondering and scratching your head what is a B Corporation, uh, you can actually um, read or listen to uh, one of our prior podcasts here on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach, uh, you will find over in uh, uh, our radio links today that actually the sixth most uh, popular uh, 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 most popular show of all time here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, is, in fact, uh, the uh, sixth most popular podcast is Clint O'Brien's show from February 8, 2011, on the topic of B corporations. So uh, it is obviously a topic that is important to the nonprofit sector, understanding sort of this blend between pure capitalism uh, and the nonprofit sector or those that are social-oriented corporations or B-benefit corporations. Uh, So you can read the article over in the radio links today uh, from The Guardian, but you can also uh, link directly to number six, the sixth most popular nonprofit coach radio show of all time, Clint O'Brien's show about learning about B corporations. Uh, And that is over in the radio links uh, today. Next up here on the nonprofit coach is uh, our opportunity to uh, bring back on the show another a good friend of the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show, uh, that is John Murcott. Uh, John has been away from the show for uh, quite some time, so we wanted to take this opportunity uh, to bring him back. Uh, he's uh, with the good folks over at karma411.com. We have a link over the radio links today. Uh, hey, John, what's happening over at, at Karma411 these days? Hi, Ted. Good to speak with you again, and hello, everybody. Uh, yeah, Ted, uh, we've uh, changed on our website. If you take a look at it, uh, some of our messaging around crowdfunding, and that's really been strong for us. We've done peer-to-peer fundraising, and that's you know that grassroots fundraising platform has been strong for us. But some of the positioning we think is interesting around crowdfunding because we're doing a lot of large projects on one side. Uh, for example, Tunnel to Towers. Uh, some of the listeners may be familiar with. They just had their big run in New York uh, last weekend. Uh, They had uh, 11,000 runners participate. And they also have a large number of other events, so other walks, other bike rides, other uh, uh, activities throughout the country. So this is all through the U.S., all through our one platform. So, you know, this really starts to address what we mean when we say the crowd. Uh, so yeah, well, uh, that was exciting. very um, you do, As you mentioned, you do have your uh, your new website, which is one of the reasons I wanted you to come back on the show. But you have 360,000 plus crowd funders, and I, I think this is a, uh, an exciting bridge to social media for nonprofit organizations. I want to make sure that my listeners understand what is it that you're talking about when you're you're talking about doing a crowdfunding event. Right, exactly. And it's really any type of event. So walks are, are of course, always the uh, the most typical example people share. But more and more of the events that we're doing now, we actually refer to as micro-events. And those are events that the organization itself are not putting on, unlike Tunnel to Towers where they are putting on the event. 
It's really distributing the fundraising, so having people reach out to their friends and uh, raise money, but also hand off the events themselves. So I'll use Tunnel to Towers for one more example. A lot of the activities for the organization take place in New York. That's where the big run is. But they have hundreds of other volunteers that are running smaller events, so smaller walks, smaller get-togethers throughout the country. So the crowdfunding doesn't just mean someone participating, sharing some money, telling their story, sharing on various social media sites, and helping raise some money. It also means those individuals doing their own events. And when I say small events, sometimes it comes down to we have a wedding coming up. Would you please make a donation to this organization as opposed to us? So some of these events are quite small from the point of view of the organization, but they're very big in the lives of the supporters. So there's all the benefits of an event, meaning there's a date, there's a call to action, there's people getting involved, people getting motivated. There's that kind of that everything driving to that one day. But you're, as an organization, you're distributing all of the planning, the organizing, the invitations, and everything else out to the crowd. So it's almost like a two-tier approach to the crowd. One is those, those more involved kind of administrators that are hosting or running or helping you organize these various events, and then you have all of the participants uh, underneath there. So it well, is quite is, a large uh, crowd. Yeah, this is, uh, this is quite uh, uh, exciting to have these tools available. We always want to highlight good companies here on the Nonprofit Coach that help uh, nonprofits, particularly even smaller nonprofits, make sense of what they're reading and learning about and how these things bring together. And the bottom line is uh, this comes down to people-to-people -people fundraising. This is people reaching out to others uh, for great causes, and that's, uh, I believe, always been uh, sort of the, the bedrock of what Karma 411 has built its platform on and continues to evolve and meet the needs of uh, the uh, constituents that come to you. 360,000 people um, is quite a big number, and uh, congratulations to all the folks over at Karma 411. Great. Thank you, Ted. Don Murkow, thank you uh, for joining us here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, we now uh, uh, wrap up uh, our page one uh, news uh, and move right on over. Uh, to page two. Over here on page new two, page two, we have our page two expert today. Sean Triner has been a fundraiser since leaving school, working through events, corporate and grant writing, uh, grant fundraising direct marketing, including um, introducing direct dialogue um, at UK charity Action Medical Research in the early 90s, one of the very first charities to embrace this method. His final job uh, before crossing into the agency side was marketing and communications director of the UK mental health charity Mind. In 2002, his team, Leeds United, were going very badly, uh, so he fled to Australia. I think that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. There may have been other reasons why uh, Sean left for Australia, but what he did do is he set up a full-service charity marketing uh, agency called Pareto Fundraising, and soon after that, the charity telemarketing uh, agency with a friend in Australia. This has been extremely successful not only in Australia, but Sean Triner comes to us um, as truly a global data uh, and fundraising guru around the planet. And uh, Sean Triner, welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach. You're actually in Europe right now, are you not? Hi, indeed I am, Ted. I'm, I'm in Ireland today. I'm doing some training tomorrow with uh, Irish fundraising agency and their charities. It's um, uh, yeah. So in Dublin, just came over from a little holiday in Greece, and then we're off to Amsterdam um, to the IFC actually as well. But I've got another conference in Amsterdam as well, and then luckily Milan, and then I'm home. So well, that's terrific. So adding to the international flavor of uh, the show today. So you uh, left Australia, went to Greece. You're now in Ireland. You'll then go to Milan or no, Amsterdam, then Milan. Uh, and then back home. So, uh, so definitely uh, helping us keep the theme going uh, for today. Um, I want to thank you, uh, over those of you who are over in the uh, chat room today. You can see that uh, uh, Sean did uh, share with all of you over in the chat room uh, the uh, link over to, um, I believe, to the uh, IFC uh, conference. Um, Sean, why don't we actually start off since uh, Sherlyn had mentioned that earlier on the show. 
uh, you and I have uh, both spoken uh, successfully at the uh, at the IFC, and I know that a number of our colleagues are actually en route to Amsterdam uh, right now. Why don't you uh, start off with a description of what is the IFC and why is it so significant? I think uh, the, the key, I suppose, difference to any of the other conferences anywhere in the world is that genuine international flavor. Um, you have probably... Uh, maybe just less than half of the speakers are sort of US and UK. Um, and you've got a group of people from all over, from Sweden and different places in uh, Europe and uh, in South America, um, and even from uh, Africa and Southeast Asia. So it's a really interesting mix. And there's always something to learn. I mean, you know, when we look at the differences between how countries do their fundraising, they always come down to different techniques and uh, and technical uh, differences, but at the end of the day, in every nation that I've ever worked in or looked at, good people uh, are, are there if there's disposable income, and good people will give if good fundraising techniques are used. And you hear the different examples of ingenious ways of people getting the asks out. Uh, one, uh, one such sort of um, fascinating um, concept comes from India, where um, people will ring um, small businesses and basically just send someone around on a scooter to talk to them about making a gift. So literally they will call cold, um, get an appointment and send somebody around. And the cost of the labor means that that's actually quite a cost-effective way of giving. And they're able to get people on to a couple of hundred rupees a month, which equates to a few dollars a month. But that ongoing giving tends to keep going and doesn't get cancelled and makes up for the cost of sending somebody around on a scooter. It's just fascinating to hear that. But you go, well, maybe I couldn't do that in my country. But there's always little tips um, that actually can apply directly uh, in whatever fundraising market you are. Sean, um, Sir Lynn uh, Hale from uh, CFRE uh, mentioned uh, earlier on in uh, page one that uh, they've done this study and they've, they've looked at that international uh, footprint of fundraising um, and that they find things are more in common than less in common. Does that surprise you? No. it's. Um, I actually do this presentation. Um, actually, I did it at a U.S. conference called It Won't Work Here because you'll often explain to someone a, a fundraising concept and they'll go, oh, well, that might work in... Uh, England or Australia or France, but it won't work here. Um, even in Australia, you can get it where we'll do something that works for a Sydney-based charity, and then we'll be speaking to a Western Australia charity um, in Perth uh, at the other side of the continent, and they'll say, oh, it won't work here. And yet, um, obviously, we're in the same country, and they still think things will be different. And we actually find that, generally speaking, things are very similar. Uh, but there are very big practical differences, like sending checks through the post in Brazil is a no-no. Um, and uh, in many countries in Europe, um, people make donations with gyros, not with cash or checks or credit cards. So they actually have to physically take their donation forms to um, post offices. Obviously, the um, online giving forms are helping to change that, but uh, we still have an issue with However, we look at it, the majority of donations are offline by a long way, and uh, the majority of donors are, are, are much older and much more comfortable in general. So, so there are demographic um, issues that need to be taken into account. I, I wonder if, uh, if you uh, were, were able to listen to Page One News today, what you make of the announcement from Facebook. First of all, that they've reached a billion, but that Brazil – um, is one of the fastest growing um, areas on the planet and, in fact, had doubled in just the last year. Um, what's happening in Brazil, and, and is that significant uh, to fundraisers? Well, it's actually fascinating. I did some work a couple of years ago in Brazil looking at um, how they're um, doing their fundraising, what techniques are in use, and by far and away the largest uh, donor acquisition and donor retention um, uh, method over there was, was the use of the phone it was really rather fascinating that people are willing to give um, payment details over the phone in Brazil to, uh, to a degree that makes it strategic, strategically significant, but they're not willing to send a check through the post because they, um, they worry about them getting stolen and, credit, uh, and um, privacy being invaded. So 
So there was really interesting things like that. And um, what we also suspect, I mean, we really don't know yet, but we suspect that because um, Brazil is more of an emerging nation in fundraising, in that the older people aren't really used to um, sort of what uh, the, the concept of we have of fundraising, you know, so people will give and support their families. But the whole idea of just supporting a strange charity like we do in the US and Australia is slightly different. So we think that it might actually grow up with a more on, uh, a younger uh, demographic in the what we call emerging fundraising nations. Um, and this has been played out uh, in reality in Southeast Asia, for example, in um, Bangkok and Manila, uh, Singapore and Hong Kong, something like two-thirds to maybe 80% of all donors there are actually signed up to charity through the guys on the street, you know, the face-to-face uh, -face stopping you in the street and getting you straight onto a monthly direct debit. And they tend to be sort of in the 30 to 40-year-old bracket, so a much younger um, age demographic than the traditional donor. So we think that we're almost going to miss out on the older generation in the emerging fundraising nations, but we're going to grow a, a new type of giving donor in, the, in these sort of new middle classes and these uh, people who are just coming across really for many um, having this ability to have disposable income. Well, that's uh, that, that, that's quite interesting. Now, uh, let's um, let's move over because I know that you have a, a, an interesting story uh, to tell. Again, keeping on this uh, this international theme, but you actually have a, a very interesting story to tell about a Thai charity um, that has been really quite successful. And again, this is this is through. Facebook. So I wanted to match that up to um, it, overall. I think that LinkedIn is far more important to the average charity, but in this case, this is a success story on Facebook. So at the point that you are making is that there are lots of strategies and they all should be considered. So can you tell that story and relate that to some of what we've been talking about on Facebook today? Yes. Um, so. Um it is a fascinating story, actually. It's a tiny, or what, what a tiny charity um, that um, is based in Phuket, which is a tourist destination in Thailand. And they have a real problem with stray dogs, basically. Um, and what they have is they have a noting kill policy. And what they try to do is, is rescue the animals, desex the animals, and release the animals. Mostly they're not, they're sort of pets, but they're kind of more like community pets than individual pets, like we would um, associate animals. Um, and they ha are, the, um, the sort of head of marketing, he lives in Australia, but he's actually, um, I say head of marketing, he's a, a wonderful volunteer. But um, he lives in Australia, but he's an American, and he uh, built his knowledge through um, IT systems and data banks and so forth. So he kind of gets the idea. And he, I'm, a, I'm on the board, by the way. They're not a client, so I'm more of a, a, I'm a volunteer in this organization as well. And what he did is he, in the nature of their work, their donors are in Germany and England, the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand. They're all over the place. So they aren't able to have the same um, reach in terms of direct mail or something like that. They really just can't. So they really had a not a lot of choice other than to use online to try and uh, raise some money. Now, the guy there is he's called Leonard Coyne, um, and he's a bit of a genius, really. But what he decided was he would use the techniques that he understood and knew from direct mail and, and normal marketing and apply them directly with Facebook. And he devised this system, which I call fluff and bite, um, where if you go to their um, Facebook site, which I've put into the um, little chat room, um, or you can just Google um, Facebook and then Soy Dog. Soy Dog is S-O-I um, dog. It stands for street dog, uh, not soy sauce dog. And that's, um, they've, they've actually up now to 95,000 likes. Now, what they found is that 10,000 likes was quite a bit of a sort of um, a threshold. That once you got to 10,000 likes, you're able to start spreading messages properly and virally. Oh, to give you a context, by the way, the RSPCA in Australia, which is a, a large charity with um, tens of millions of dollars of income, 
has 93,000 likes, so more or less the same number. Um, but Soy Dog uh, had an income of around $100,000 or so not so long ago, and now they're up to a couple of million. And that has all been through this plus and bite system, which is where you basically kind of put bits of fluff up. Um, and fluff being the right word, really, when you're talking about animal charities. So all the cute stuff, uh, very regularly um, updating their Facebook plan and getting people to put pictures up of an rescued animals, animals that need rescuing. Uh, you may recall the big floods in Thailand, which uh, increased the prices of memory sticks and things like that just recently. Well, that had enormous impact on um, animals as well. So during that period, they had lots of photographs of um, uh, distressed animals. And in fact, on their Facebook page, they've got some dogs being rescued um, out of the floodwaters, which is a beautiful picture. And through this, they basically um, constantly advertise very strategically on Facebook, adopt a dog, you know, sponsor a dog, donate today. There's no messing about. They're really, really in your face with the constant advertising. Um, and this uh, advertising takes you to monthly donations through various processes. Mostly out of Facebook, we found much more successful to actually get the donations from a landing page and off um, Facebook. Um, we're still trying to work out how to use to stay within the Facebook um, uh, environment, but we have found it's much better than the way we're running at the moment. And we've managed to get to $1.5 million worth of monthly donors through pretty much through Facebook and followed up by email. So this is so, but this is paid advertising. Then this is this is using the uh, the, the the Facebook um, uh, system to connect with people who are likely to be interested in dogs. That's right, but it's actually complicated. So it, 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 just doing paid doesn't work um, in, in all these things. It is it really genuinely is a two-way system. So uh, these likes and getting people talking about you is really important. I mean. Um, we find that that obviously helps us target the advertising much more successfully. Um, but at the end of the day, if you don't advertise, it doesn't work. And if you don't build a community, it doesn't work. Either, and if you haven't got a brilliant story, it doesn't work. So there's like the three pillars of this stool of which your stool won't stay up. Give, give us those three pillars again. Give us those three pillars again. So the, the three pillars are um, advertising, paid advertising. It's not free and it's not, um, you know, it's, it, it, you pay and it, you pay comparable to other forms of fundraising. Well, and, and, and I pre just put that in context to what we say here on the show and what, what I'm consistent in my presentations are, um, is that when you are putting together your online budget, um, the number one thing that you should spend money on is developing a well-designed website full of unique content about your organization. But number two is actually paid uh, advertising. So it's interesting. So that's one of, one of the pillars and something that, that you concur with. So uh, what's the next pillar? So, well, I actually concur with your first part, although I would broaden it rather than just say it's you know a, a brilliant website. It's about having fantastic stories. And of course, a really good website tells stories. I mean, you know, the technical construction of it is quite important, but really, it's the um, the content and how how good the stories are. So for me, it's the paying the stories and building a genuine community of people who are connected. So these 93,000 people, with half of them talking about um, soy dog right now, um, is quite considerable. Uh, again, if you compare that to RSPCA Australia. They've got 100,000 likes and 800 people talking about them. You know, you compare that with Soy Dog with 93,000 likes and 46,000 talking about them. It's just astonishing. Um, just to point out, um, uh, 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 Sean, I just want to point out, this is one of the values of, of having a platform like we have here on the Nonprofit Coach. Um, I just want to pull out and say very thank you, thank you to Jonathan Glasso, who is over in the chat room today, and he's actually uh, communicating with Sean. And I just want to share with those of you who would like to join us in the chat room, please go to tedhart.com and click on the show. You can join uh, the chat room. But there is a bit of a dialogue going on there, and I just wanted to uh, help Jonathan bring that into, uh, into the show. Um, Jonathan has said that what you're talking about sounds like what he would refer to as guerrilla fundraising. Um, it's a couple of questions that he's asked that, that um, we can let our listeners know about. Do those that are engaged know that they're um, supporting uh, soy dogs in this particular case? 
Um, and then he goes on to ask about recidivism and how many are dropping off and, and is this have a long-term um, success story for uh, Sordog? Um, I think Jonathan was referring to the face-to-face -face that I mentioned, the younger people in Southeast Asia being signed up on the street rather than the Facebook um, point. But the, the questions are still relevant for Soydog as well. Um, and the, the offer online is very clear that it's a monthly commitment. Um, uh, yeah, okay, Jonathan has uh, confirmed that it's a face-to-face. -face. So, Jonathan, thank you uh, for setting me straight on uh, on that fact. So, uh, go ahead, Sean, uh, specifically those that are face-to-face -face and the relationship that they now have with Soydog. Uh, so Soydog doesn't do face-to-face, -face. so we were talking about different things then. We were talking about the growth of um, younger giving in Southeast Asia. Uh, I was using Soydog uh, is more of an example of pure face-to-face. -face. So they are, sorry, pure um, Facebook. Uh, I'm getting confused with my faces now. Um, the face-to-face -face is the act. Soydog doesn't partake in that at this present time, but that's the act of people stopping you in the street. Um, it happens a lot in the U.S. as well, where they would talk to you and say, "Hey, can I talk to you about Amnesty International or, or whatever?" And, and that sort of has had more of more of a heyday than it does today um, in, say, Canada um, and some other. So, is that is that sort of one of those things that that uh, Jonathan is saying yes uh, in the street? So, so we're on the right topic that he wants us to talk about um, here. Is is that sort of a concept that sort of moves around the globe in its popularity because it it seems to be popular in one place and then wane and then you see it pop up someplace else and it's quite successful there. I've well, I've got to be honest. If you look at the data, I've never seen it wane in any country. Okay. Uh, uh, we've got to the point now in the United Kingdom, which is probably although um, Germany and Austria uh, were, were sort of doing it in the modern uh, way before the United Kingdom, it was. British charities that grabbed this uh, and really have really grown with it. And then in Australia, we sort of skipped uh, a lot of the other fundraising when we kind of grew up and went straight into face-to-face. -face. So to give you sort of a context, um, in the UK, there are still um, you know, ridiculously huge volumes of donors signing up every month, but it gets harder and harder and harder as time goes by. In Australia, about... Um, a third of money that is raised from individual donors to the top charities um, comes from face-to-face. -face. So uh, that's a, a huge number. So that's of individual income. About a third of it is coming from face-to-face. -face. This is a huge growth. So we're talking about, if this could happen in the United States, we're talking about adding 10 or $15 billion onto charities' income every year. Now, Jonathan asked some very specific points here about um, do people know what they're supporting? Well, uh, if they don't, they cancel pretty quick, which leads to Jonathan's second point, um, recidivism or uh, attrition, as we call it, which only, only, I only call it attrition because it's easier to say. But um, how many drop off? The number that drop off varies by charity and varies by the skill of the charity in, in um, creating a dialogue with the new donors. Um, and also the fact that these are younger donors, and we know that um, young, younger donors um, have a worse uh, retention rate uh, anyway. So, what are some of the points that you would uh, that you would make to a charity that might think about this form of uh, fundraising? That are the better practices to reduce the chance of uh, of recidivism or, or attrition? Okay. So, well, the first thing. So in Australia, basically, I'll just tell you some of the top numbers, and this seems to be about the same everywhere. You'll lose between 30 and 40% of your new donors within 12 months. Now, that's a heck of a lot better than direct mail, for example. Um, and then in the subsequent months, you'll lose 15 to 10% per annum, and it, it, it sort of gets better and better, obviously, as you get rid of the uh, worst donors. Um, you plug those numbers into a spreadsheet and you can see that it's, it's pretty damn good. Now, the, the income comes in from keeping as many people, but also just to sort of, it's not a miracle thing where you can just go and do it and go, oh, cool. It does cost, uh, depending on the country, between $200 and $300 um, in fees and so forth to just uh, get that person on your database. Most of the suppliers will give you uh, money back if that person cancels within a few months. Um, but you're, you're paying for people who are perhaps giving you $30 a month and you might be paying $200 or 
which means that you don't really make any money for 12 or 13 months or even longer in a more mature market. So it does take quite a while, but because they stay for sort of four, five, six years on average, um, you get a lot of gifts after that, which are just rolling in without actually that much work. However, to your question, how do you, what are some of the tips to keep these people? We found that the most important thing so far is to get people who are older. So the older they are is the single biggest factor as to whether they'll stay with you. But the businesses that operate doing these tend to, to acquire younger donors, and it's very difficult for them to move to only getting older donors and still keep a viable business model. So in the end, you end up with a bit of a balance, but your older donors will be uh, much better at staying with you. We recommend really good materials that really tell a beautiful story and basically give people the ammunition that they need um, when they go home uh, and they're no longer emotionally involved and their wife or husband says, you know, we can't be doing this, what are you doing this for? And to give them the ammunition that they need to basically sort of uh, bash the spouse with um, information about why we should stay supporting this charity. Yeah, so make make them more knowledgeable in terms of uh, why uh, why they've done that. I, I hope that we've uh, uh, been able to uh, uh, express uh, the interest that Jonathan has, uh, Jonathan Glasso over in the chat room today, uh, providing answers uh, to the questions that he has. Uh, Sean, we're just going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back. And when uh, we come back, um, we do want to uh, address some questions that have come in, and if anybody else in the chat room would like to uh, ask a question, we're certainly uh, open uh, to that. And specifically, I want to get into some questions about LinkedIn uh, with Sean, and so we will be right back after the break. I do want to draw your attention uh, to um, our upcoming schedule here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach. So if you want to uh, grab your calendar, uh, of course, today we have uh, Sean Triner as our guest. Next uh, week we will have uh, another international guest, uh, someone who I'm, I'm guessing that Sean uh, knows and may, uh, may even want to comment on today, David, uh, Dave Sims from the Leukemia Foundation. Australia will be our guest uh, next week here on the Nonprofit Coach, uh, followed by an expert on boards of directors and governing your organization. David LaGreca will be joining us on October 23rd. Rounding out uh, this month of uh, October will be Amy Eisenstein, who will be here. She's a major gift uh, fundraising and campaign expert. Um, now, here in the United States, uh, it's probably not uh, uh, past your notice that we have a big election coming up. On November 6th, we will not have a show uh, on that day because we want to encourage everyone to please get out and vote. Uh, and uh, so that is a really, really terrific day to get caught up on some of the most popular podcasts on so many different topics uh, here at uh, Ted Hart uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach. So uh, that is our upcoming schedule. Uh, and with that, uh, just a moment, we're going to uh, head back over to uh, Sean Triner and page two expert on the nonprofit coach. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the nonprofit coach with Ted Hart. We're back here live on the Nonprofit Coach. This is Tuesday, October 9th, and I'm coming to you live from New York City. Our uh, guest uh, today is Sean Triner, a globally recognized fundraising guru um, who is here to help us on a variety of different topics. And today we've been uh, talking about some of the specific suggestions uh, that he has uh, re regarding uh, both face-to-face -face and uh, online fundraising. One of the topics I wanted to explore with you, uh, Sean, and welcome back here, um, is that of LinkedIn uh, in the six pillars of success that we talk about here on this show. LinkedIn is number three uh, for U.S. charities and actually two, number two for those outside of the United States. Over on LinkedIn, um, I currently have uh, 2,252 uh, people who are uh, linked uh, to me. Uh, and then, of course, as you know, we, uh, we host... Uh, the People to People Fundraising Group, 
um, over here on uh, on the, uh, the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show. Um, and I'm just looking up that uh, that number right now to give you the number of people because that's quite an active group. Uh, we are fast approaching 2,000 uh, in the People to People fundraising uh, group over on LinkedIn. We're now at 1,969. Now, those are just some numbers I'm sharing out there because from your perspective, uh, Sean, 1,970 is an important number? <laughs> yes, Ted, 1970. Um, the reason that for me 1970 is an incredibly important number is all to do with donor behavior. Now, so this is, an age, this is, an, an, again, an age distinction just as, as the face-to-face. Right. -face. So 1970 but, becomes an age distinction. That's right. So it just, it, I was going to talk to you about 1970, and then when I noticed you had 1,970 um, members on the P2P, I thought, oh, perfect. Yeah, well, well, actually, we're, we're almost there. We have uh, 1,969, so if somebody signs up today, <laughs> they can be your, your official 1970 uh, person in the People's People fundraising group. But go, go ahead and tell us all about uh, the year 1970 and why that's important to LinkedIn. Because, well, it's not just important to LinkedIn. It's important to um, pretty much all fundraising when we're looking um, at, at uh, fundraising on a, in, using digital methods, whatever they are, social media or anything else, um, to recruit new donors. When I look at um, U.S. and Australian data, I've got the Australian data in front of me here. But basically what it's showing me is that if, of new donors that were acquired in 2002, um, I'm looking at this chart and I can see different colors by direct mail, online, uh, phone, face-to-face -face and so forth. And on this chart, I can't see the pixels in 2002, the number of donors that were acquired. Whereas if I whiz all the way up to 2011, which was the best year um, for acquiring new donors uh, online in Australia, I can see that it's gone from absolutely nothing to pretty much nothing still, in that it's probably around 8%, or not even 8%, maybe 6% of all donors um, acquired by online. Now, what I mean by acquired is that their solicitation method was a digital method, um, such as what we were talking about with Soy Dog. So if somebody got a direct mail or a phone or a TV ad and they responded to an excellent website, um, which helps in the conversion process, and they're not counted as an online donor um, for this study. But what it's showing you is that um, it really isn't anywhere near as dominant as one would have expected it to be back in 2002. And my theory, and this, you know I'm massively into data, so I will always tell you if it's a theory or whether we prison it. But my theory of this is all to do with the year 1970. So I was born in 1970, um, which makes me 42 years old. Now, when I look at the average donor age, when you look at people who've been given for two years or more, or any loyal givers who've given five plus gifts, for example, we see that the average age of, of donors that have done that um, is well over 65. So the average age of, of donors is much greater than that. The only exception is these new face-to-face -face donors, when I'm, when I'm talking about large volumes, and they tend to be in this much younger group. So this is a huge difference in age, and that's still another, what, 20, 23 years for me. And my theory is that the reason that 1970 is so important is because people born in 1970 who were professionals, when they went to work in their first job in 91, 92, they pretty much got given a computer. People before 1970 didn't. So you, it's obviously a couple of years either side, but that's probably much the tipping point where most people went to work in 91, 92 after they graduated from university or whatever, and they had a computer on their desk. Now, the reason that that's important is because these are the real computer people, people born after 1970. Now, of course, people born before 1970, um, uh, there's pretty good techni technical people there. There's lots of people on computers, and people were forced to learn computers, even if they'd never touched them at school. But in the end, these people born after 1970, whatever we do, they are just so at ease with computers. Computers are part of their community, part of their society, and always have been. Whereas people who've been born before that 
came into computers. So my, I will bet you a whole pint of beer that in 23 years' time, more money will come into charities solicited online than offline. Um, but that's 23 years away. Now, I also... Yeah. Look at, and, 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 I, and I want to actually just jump in and share another number that sort of drives your point home, and that's the year 2020. Um, that uh, according to the Intuit 2020 report, fully 40% of current industrialized populations will come of age in the year 2020, not knowing a time without social networks, mobile and text communication, and online giving. So where 1970 becomes significant through the use of the computer, 2020 becomes a, a true tipping point for a population that, that social networking isn't just an interesting curiosity and a, a pretty cool idea. It's just part of who they are. I think that, that's, that's brilliant. So that, 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 yeah, it does important. I mean, I do think that, of course, when people come of age, they're still not good donors. So we still know, need those people to get to 60 um, before they become, I mean, by good donors, I, I mean, you know, consistent. When you look at the data, you see that age is such a huge uh, impact on, um, on retention. And back to Jonathan's point, the street fundraising gets uh, worse attrition probably because you're picking up younger donors. Uh, than any other reason. Um, but I do think that it will be before 23 years because of artificial constraints. So, for example, in the United Kingdom, um, you won't be able to support a charity with a check uh, in the near future because checks are going to be phased out very soon. Uh, they were meant to be phased out this year and it was only protests from charities, I think, that, that prevented it happening so far. So there will be artificial constraints that force um, uh, digital media to grow. Um, faster than the, uh, the than the demographic is catching up, but of course the demographic will then catch up. I want to, uh, uh, Sean. I want to uh, go back to sort of, I guess, come back around the the, the world to um, your experience um, in Australia, um, and specifically how that does or does not provide um, some uh, interesting platform and suggestions for. U.S.-based charities, and just keeping in mind our our time schedule here, we you know we have about six minutes before we need to start wrapping up. Sorry, I didn't get, quite get the question. Uh, the question the question is um, specifically your experience with Australian charities and how um, what you have learned there may or may not um, be relevant uh, to what U.S. charities should be doing. All right, I think the single most important thing is one mathematical context. I think this is the single most important thing for any fundraising. Jonathan, you're going to love this, and hopefully everybody else is. Um, and that is this concept, um, which is all to do with my company name, and there's a reason I call my company Pareto. Um, now, I'm sure you're familiar with the Pareto principle that 80% of your donations are likely to come from 20% of your donors. And that works in any charity, if you take, um, say, a decade's worth of donations um, from all sources, you'll see that it's pretty much spot on, that 80% of all of the money came from just 20% of the donation. Now, most people understand that, and they know that, and they try to look after this top 20%. But what's extraordinarily interesting is that on a large scale like that, over a decade or across lots of charities, the Pareto principle works twice. So what this means is if I have um, uh, 10,000 donors uh, right now, then over the next 10 years, uh, I'm pretty safe in saying that 80% um, of the money will come from just 2,000 of them. But also, 80% um, of that money will come from 20% of them. So in other words, if I expect, say, a million dollars from... Um, let's say a thousand people over a period of time, then I will actually get eight hundred thousand of that from just two hundred people. But I will get six hundred and forty thousand, which is eighty percent of eight hundred thousand, from just forty people. So this is known as Pareto Square in that 80% of 80% of your money will come from 20% of 20% of your donors. Now, do that on radio without a picture. It's quite hard to grasp. I hope your listeners are grasping that. But the importance of that is that I will get more than half of my money 
from 10,000 donors, I will get more than half of that from just around 40 people. That's really important for how I do my legacy marketing, how I do my legacy, uh, my um, regular giving targeting and everything else. So, so, so part of your message here is it's not always about bigger lists. It's about targeting the right people. That's right. So in Australia, we haven't got big lists. We're tiny. There are more people that live within pretty much a long walking distance from um, New York City uh, than there is in the whole of our continent, which is the same size as, as the, um, the, the contiguous United States. So, you know, it's from um, LA to New York is about the same as across Australia. So we're pretty big, um, but we've only got 20 million people. So it's really important to us to maximize the income out of those people. So this is the biggest lesson, I think, for U.S. charities who are used to having huge constituencies. Now, I'll give you a real-life example. We did some research for an American charity who had had 3.5 million people donate to them in the last few years. About 700,000 of those had donated in the last 12 months. And we worked on the data, and we identified 50,000 out of 700,000, so just 50,000 out of 700,000 that were worth trying to convert to sustainers. So the initial reaction from that charity and any other charity is, well, why would I be interested in just 50,000 people? Because I'm only going to get maybe five to 10,000 of those to become sustainers. And I've got 700,000 donors. Why would I worry about just five to 10,000 donors? And the answer is that over 10 years, those five to 10,000 donors would be giving best part of half of all of the money that that charity is going to raise. So the important thing here is if you have a large database, right from the beginning, you really need to look at who are your sustainers, who are your um, legacy donors. Um, the problem is you don't just focus on these ones. You still involve these you know, sort of the less significant donors, if you like, um, because we want them to come on board uh, and become these more significant donors if they can. And by significant donors, I'm talking purely financial. Of course, so you, still, you still need to have uh, strong programming and outreach to the base because that's how you grow and build the 20%, but you need to be focused on the 20%. That's absolutely right. So that, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the approach that we are effectively forced to take. And this works even if you're a tiny charity. You know, if you just have 10,000 donors, um, then 500 of those are likely to give half of all of the money you're going to make over the next 10 years. And keep repeating that. You know, you're going to have a tiny proportion. You know, less than 5% of those people are going to give you over half of your money over the last next 10 years. So think long term and apply Pareto squared. It's absolutely essential. Well, terrific. Sean, before we, uh, we wrap up, I did want to uh, just share uh, good wishes came in uh, to you. Uh, from Simone Joyo and Tom Ahern, and they're both saying that they look forward to seeing you uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, so uh, they are in route, and I know that you're already there um, in uh, in the uh, um, uh, in, in the in Europe. Um, so um, they uh, they just sent in a, uh, a message and uh, said that they would like to uh, get, offer their best wishes. Thanks, Chad, and thanks, Tom and Simone. See you soon, guys. Absolutely. Um, so we are wrapping up. We're in just the last couple of uh, minutes. I want to thank everybody who participated today over in the, the chat room uh, and Sean Treiner, uh, who is uh, uh, living in Australia, but is right now uh, over in uh, Europe. Sean, how can my listeners reach out to you? Um, I'll, the best way is probably, well, they can, um, <laughs> they can use LinkedIn, so find me on LinkedIn. Um, or they can look at my website, which is ParetoFundraising.com. And we do have a link to ParetoFundraising.com over in the radio links today. So for anyone uh, who has uh, trouble finding that, you can find that at TedHart.com. And I will be at AFC, um, AFP sorry, in uh, April uh, in San Diego. So I'll be speaking there and doing two different sessions there. Terrific, terrific. Uh, that is uh, Sean Treiner um, uh, from uh, Pareto Fundraising joining us uh, today from uh, Ireland as he's making his way over to the IFC conference uh, in uh, just outside of uh, Amsterdam. Uh, Sean Treiner, thank you for joining us here on the Now Profit Coach Radio Show. Bye-bye, and Ted. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. 
tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.